Hello and welcome to A View from the Bench, a podcast about my experiences, reflections, and perceptions in the courtroom dealing with the trial of major criminal cases over a legal career spanning almost five decades. I'm your host, Albert McKegg, a senior Texas State District Judge. Today, we will be talking about the process involved in the trial of any major criminal case. The podcast is more informative than drama, but I hope it will set the stage for how jury trials work in the highest level trial courts in the great state of Texas and give you a better understanding of the criminal justice system in Texas. Keep in mind that every court may have its own internal rules and procedures, but this outline is generally what you will see in all the district-level courts in Texas. The district court is where the big cases take place. These are the cases likely seen on the news or commented on through social media. We'll also cover the role of trial judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys in the trial of those major cases. The details may not be what you expect, but I've been involved in about 365 jury trials as either a prosecutor, a defense attorney, a civil law attorney, and a district judge. I've just about seen it all, and I hope this episode will help you be informed about what is really going on when you hear about a trial in the news or on social media. It may come as a surprise to you, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but not everything you hear on the news or see on the social media is true or accurate. That's my editorial for the day, so let's move on. Before we get started, though, and because I still sit as a senior state district judge, I do have to do the disclosure routine. I do apologize for that, but it's a necessary thing that we do cover. In these episodes, I will not be giving a legal opinion on the law, but merely my impression of how certain laws fit certain fact situations. Also, nothing said in this podcast is intended to show or predict how I will rule on either current or future cases. The Judicial Code of Ethics prohibits my commenting on cases pending in my court or criticizing the actions of other trial judges. All cases that I discuss have been disposed of, and I no longer have any jurisdiction or authority over those cases. With those disclosures out of the way, let's talk about a view from the bench. There are rare circumstances where a person accused of a crime will go to the judge for a trial of a major criminal case without a jury. It does happen, and I'll tell you about a couple of those that I've handled in later episodes. But picking a jury to hear a major criminal case is really the first step in the criminal trial. In urban areas, juries are usually qualified and kept in a large jury pool room. It's kind of an assembly room. When a court needs a jury, a number of qualified jurors, usually 40 or so, are taken to that courtroom and the selection process begins for those 12 who will become the jurors in a case. In rural areas, a much larger number of people are generally brought directly into the courtroom and the qualification process is conducted by the court clerk or the trial judge or a combination of the two. In either case, the qualification process uses the same laws and rules, so the result will ultimately be about the same. For the attorneys handling the case, jury selection is almost an art form, and each type of case has its own particular issues and problems. For example, murder cases generally will have forensics experts, often DNA experts, ballistic experts, medical examiners, and others that are specially trained and skilled as expert witnesses. In questioning the jury panel, the lawyers will be trying to find out the knowledge level of jurors about those things and checking into the individual juror backgrounds to see if they have any personal experiences along those lines. 
Sexual abuse of a child cases bring out a very strong emotional response in prospective jurors, and rightfully so. And if the lawyer isn't careful, the questioning process can end up disqualifying the entire jury panel by how questions are asked, and that could cause a delay in getting a case to trial. How questions are asked in those emotionally charged cases, be it child sex, murder case, or what have you, really does matter. I've seen a couple of trials over the years when I thought the attorney was actually trying to disqualify the jury in order to obtain a delay in the case. From the bench, it's very hard to keep that from happening as the role of the trial judge in state court isn't to question the jury panel, but to allow the attorneys to question the panel in compliance with certain rules and procedures. In any kind of case, the questions will get into the potential juror's background, biases, experiences, and opinions on the law. The process can be quite lengthy depending on the kind of case being prepared for trial. One thing the jury panel won't hear at this point are any of the facts of the case. That may seem odd, but at this point, what the lawyers are doing is not presenting the facts of the case, but getting into the jury panel's feelings about the kind of case and the laws affecting the case. Because of the different points of view between the prosecutor and the defense attorney, we'll talk a little about their role in the cases. The role of the prosecutor is not to seek a conviction, but to seek justice. This is a requirement set out by law. I certainly hope that a prosecutor taking a case to a jury believes in his or her case, but the ultimate goal isn't a conviction, but to see that justice is carried out within the full parameters of the law for both the victim and the defendant. A prosecutor does that with a thorough investigation of the case, a study of the law applicable to the case, and preparing the witnesses necessary to prove the elements of the case. Those elements are often called the components of the offense that's charged. The prosecutors generally work for the elected district attorney of the county in which the case is being filed. Early in my legal career, for over four years, I served as a felony prosecutor and special prosecutor on major cases, so I've seen that side of a trial. I thoroughly enjoyed the responsibility and work of a felony prosecutor. Prosecutors generally have access to investigators on their staff who work with local law enforcement to make sure all the evidence and witnesses of a case are assembled, available, and ready for trial. In general, the more difficult the case, the more experienced will be the prosecutor. With murder, child sex cases, and similar high-visibility cases generally drawing the more experienced prosecutors. All lawyers need to learn how to try cases, and usually the lower-level cases will draw the less experienced prosecutors, as you might well expect. However, even then, in my experience, those prosecutors are well-trained and knowledgeable about the law and the procedures for trying a particular case. Contrary to a lot of television shows or popular belief, the role of the defense attorney isn't to lie, cheat, and steal in any way they can in order to get their client off. I know there's a perception that a defendant wants a junkyard dog kind of an attorney, but I can tell you from my experience that more often than not, that kind of a lawyer will not do well in front of a jury. The role of a defense attorney is to see that his or her client has every right and protection offered by the laws and the constitutions of both the United States and of Texas. The defense must be vigorous, and it must question each position taken by the prosecution so that, in the end, a just verdict is rendered by the jury. A good defense attorney truly should have a full belief in the rights afforded each of us as citizens under the laws and constitutions that apply, and use those rights in representing his or her client. 
It's good when the defense attorney strongly attacks the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses. In that way, usually a good idea of the real truth will come out. Frankly, I like to see attorneys for both sides who are passionate about what they do and passionate about upholding the law. I was a defense attorney for many years and at one time was qualified to try capital murder cases. So I know that side of the law, too, and I enjoy doing it. In many counties, defense attorneys for indigent defendants come from a separate public defender's office. Those offices are often set up very much like the district attorney's office with the staff, investigators, and resources that the defense attorney can use in representing his or her client. In less populated counties, the defense attorneys for indigent defense will usually be in private practice and serve as an appointed attorney only as a part of his or her law practice. Some attorneys only practice criminal law for paying clients, and in those situations, they provide all the support and investigations for their clients' resources and payments. I've seen very good attorneys as public defenders, and I've seen marginal attorneys under private pay contracts, so it can go either way, so don't have any preconceived ideas about the quality of an offense attorney by where they come from. The role of the trial judge is very complex. There are many small tasks that the judge must perform in order for a trial to get started and progress to its logical conclusion. The judge is a timekeeper, a referee, a rulemaker, a mediator, decision maker, and a scholar of the law that affects a particular case at trial. A trial judge makes sure the jury has all it needs to be comfortable and to be able to listen to complex cases and make the tough decisions about the case. The judge must be absolutely impartial to both sides, and there can be no outward indications or clues about how the judge feels about the case, the defendant, or the attorneys trying the case. Judges are called on to make snap decisions on objections and rules of law in order to keep a trial moving, and that takes paying sharp attention to everything said in the courtroom and constantly evaluating what is going on. We even have to deal with the sound, the lights, and the comfort of the jury. It would be very rare for a trial judge to take over the questioning of a witness like you see on television or in the movies. That may happen in a non-jury hearing, but rarely in front of a jury. When a judge first starts out on the bench, usually after many years as a trial lawyer, it's really hard to sit there and be quiet while the attorneys do their job. From my standpoint, I really enjoyed being a trial attorney, and I racked up almost 200 jury trials during my time as a lawyer. So since taking the bench over 15 years ago, I handled about another 165 or so major jury trials. I really like being a judge, and I'm very thankful to the citizens who gave me the opportunity to be a judge for them. Since my retirement from the active bench, I've been privileged to travel all over Southeast Texas trying major cases and handling complex legal issues. I thoroughly enjoy that too. But I'll tell you, it's still sometimes very difficult to sit there and not say anything while the attorneys are doing the questioning. Now, once a jury trial starts, you will mostly hear from the lawyers and from time to time from the judge on points of law or a simple instruction. The jury rarely, if ever, gets to participate in any way. They listen and absorb. The members of the jury that is selected in the trial are the sole and exclusive judges of the credibility, or put another way, the believability of the witnesses and the weight to be given their testimony. 
Even as the judge, I'm not allowed to influence the jury's evaluation of the case through my words or actions during the trial. My job as the judge is to decide the law and to be certain that both sides receive a fair trial. The jury has to basically sit there and absorb what is going on. They cannot ask questions on their own, but they are allowed to take notes during the trial to help them remember what was said or done. Finally, at the end of a case, the judge has to put together a document called a jury charge that contains the law and legal instructions for the particular kind of case being tried. Usually, the trial judge gets a great deal of assistance and input from the prosecution and the defense so that all the necessary instructions are given and the right questions get asked of the jury. It's not a simple up or down question of guilty or not guilty. The jury uses that charge, which is usually several pages long, along with all the evidence they've heard during the trial to come up with and render a verdict of guilty or not guilty. The vote of the jury should be unanimous, but if for some reason the jury cannot come to a decision, once sufficient time has passed, and that's up to the judge, Without any sort of a decision, a mistrial may be declared by the judge. Those are rare, but they do happen. I've had to do that several times over my career. Trial of a criminal case in Texas is in two phases or parts. In the first part, or phase one, the jury will hear all the evidence and decide only the issue of whether the defendant is guilty or not guilty. That is only a snapshot of what the defendant is accused of doing. It doesn't go into the defendant's background, character, or life story, only the facts dealing with the charges. In that second phase, the punishment phase, both the defendant and the prosecutor do have an opportunity to present evidence and testimony about the defendant's life, background, education, and other relevant things. Keep in mind, though, that the defendant does not have to present anything and may remain silent as a constitutional right. Only if the jury finds the defendant guilty does the trial go to the second phase. There are issues that need to be discussed in the jury selection process dealing with this second part called the punishment phase of the trial, even though the defendant has not yet been found guilty. That is why the jury is given the legal range of punishment for a particular kind of case during the selection process. The legislature provides the range of punishment for all particular crimes. If you wonder why we have a range of punishment instead of a set sentence for a particular offense, there are obviously some cases that present those kinds of facts that require punishment in the upper part of the range. But there are also those kinds of cases that don't present those kinds of facts and are worthy of a lesser punishment. That's why we have a range of punishment rather than a set sentence for a particular crime. A jury is allowed to use their collective wisdom and common sense to figure out what is best in any given situation, all of which are very fact-dependent. In the second part of a trial, and again, only if the defendant has first been found guilty, the defendant is entitled to choose whether punishment will be assessed by the judge or by the jury. That is a constitutional right in Texas. In some of my case-specific episodes, I'll talk about my thought processes in coming up with the various sentences I've handed down over the years. Keep in mind that each case is unique, and a just sentence is totally dependent upon the facts of that particular case. Juries and judges are allowed to evaluate the case, the victims, the defendant, and the law in coming up with a just sentence that fits the facts. 
In a jury selection process, there are a few general principles of law that I like to review with the jury before the lawyers proceed with their questions. The first is the burden of proof. Always, in every criminal case that is tried in the great state of Texas, the state has the burden of proof. The defendant never has to prove his or her innocence, and wherever I say the state, I mean the district attorney and the staff of prosecutors. The defendant is presumed to be innocent unless and until guilt has been established by legal evidence that is presented during this trial beyond a reasonable doubt. This is not proof beyond all doubt. It's not beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not that you believe it's more likely than not. Only each juror in his or her own mind can determine what doubt is reasonable. There is no legal definition for that. The defendant in any criminal case is not required to prove himself innocent either. If the defendant does not choose to testify, the jury may not and frankly must not consider that fact as evidence of guilt, nor may the jury in its deliberations comment on or in any way refer to that fact. I understand that there's a natural tendency to want to hear the other side of the story. We do that with our children. We do that in buying things, and we see that in political debates and other parts of our lives. However, the very foundations of our criminal laws in Texas and the United States do not require the defendant to testify and give his or her side of the story. That right often causes a lot of concern for the jury panel during the selection process, but this is not a loophole, but a deeply seated constitutional right. Surveys have shown that aside from the fear of death, fear of public speaking is the number one fear in the United States, and testifying in court isn't just getting on the stand and telling your side of the story. It's a very tightly controlled question-and-answer type of testimony designed to keep the person on topic and on task, and the person on the witness stand is usually being asked questions by very skilled and very trained lawyers. Frankly, it's tough on a person. If a defendant does decide to testify, just about everything about that person's life is going to be open for question by the prosecutor, so whether to testify or not is a very serious and carefully made decision. Also, it's quite possible that the defense attorney knows his or her client cannot stand up to the scrutiny of a tough cross-examination by the prosecutor. There may be a lot of good reasons why a defendant would not choose to testify. The defendant in every case, the prosecutor, the public, and frankly our entire system of justice all require that a fair jury be chosen and that at the beginning of the case is free from any preconceived ideas of guilt or innocence of the defendant. A fair jury is one that at the beginning of the case is impartial to both sides and can follow the law as given by the judge. A fair jury would be the kind of jury you would want to have hear your case if you were unfortunate enough to be brought into court. In the highest level of trial courts where I work, the jury consists of 12 people, all citizens of the county in which the case is heard. I usually select one or two alternates to sit on the jury, depending on the nature of the case. That keeps us from having a mistrial if one of the jurors gets sick or has an issue coming up that removes them from the jury. Each juror must then determine the facts as he or she sees them. To do that, they must evaluate the credibility or believability of each witness and decide the weight and value to be given to that witness's testimony. 
in considering the weight and value of the testimony of a witness, the jury may consider the person's appearance, attitude, behavior, the person's interest in the outcome of the case, his or her relationship to the defendant or with the state of Texas, the inclination of the witness to tell the truth, the probability or improbability of the witness's statements, the reasonable inferences from those statements, and all other factors each juror feels will help in giving the testimony of that witness the degree of credibility it deserves. Once the jury is selected and seated, the trial of a criminal case proceeds generally as follows. The charges are read and the defendant enters a plea. Usually that plea is not guilty. If the person is pleading self-defense or some other sort of excuse, that is stated at that time too. The prosecutor then may make an opening statement that outlines what the prosecution intends to prove. The defense attorney may do so as well or reserve it to a later time. The prosecutor will then offer evidence through the testimony of witnesses. The defense attorney may cross-examine each of those witnesses, and evidence will consist of the witness's testimony and maybe photographs, documents, guns, knives, bullets, bloodstains, analyses, DNA, autopsy reports, and about any kind of physical thing you can imagine in a particular kind of case. When the prosecutor has finished presenting the state's case, the defense attorney may or may not present evidence and witnesses. Remember that the defendant is never required to prove his or her innocence. The prosecutor may cross-examine each defense witness if any are presented. When the defense is finished presenting its witnesses, the prosecutor may put on rebuttal witnesses and the defense may do the same thing. You may wonder why a defense attorney would not present a case or present a particular active defense. Well, one instance would be if the defense attorney is sure the prosecutor has failed to prove some key element of the offense charged, such as which county it happened in or the identification of the defendant. But that decision is a tactical decision made by the defense attorney is very fact-dependent. Once the state rests its case in chief, the defense attorney could then move for an instructed verdict of not guilty. I've only seen that happen a couple of times, but it can happen. At the conclusion of all of the evidence from both sides, as the judge, I will read the court's charge to the jury, which contains the law of the case, and each side will then present closing arguments. Closing arguments are generally very interesting, and a good attorney will use a bit of theater and drama to plead their case. I really enjoy the arguments of a good attorney, although I have to keep a poker face on and not react one way or the other. Once those arguments are all done, only then will the jury be permitted to deliberate on the case. Until that point, even though the jury may have heard a lot of evidence over several days of trial, the jury has been instructed to not talk about the case with each other or anyone else. So you see, getting a jury selected and seated in a major criminal case is a complex, time-consuming process that is intended to provide a fair and unbiased jury at the beginning of the case. I hope this introduction will help you understand the process, and if you receive a jury summons, I encourage you to go and participate. Jury service is one of the great rights provided by our form of laws and our Constitution. In my opinion, jury service is every bit as important as any other kind of public service. Be sure to take your turn at it when the opportunity comes up. In upcoming episodes, we'll begin to look at some of the other tough cases I've tried over the years, and I'll give you a view from the bench on what was going on and how I saw the cases. Be sure to follow me, Albert M. McKegg, on your favorite podcast platform and share these episodes with your friends. I'll see you next time right here. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. 
and give you peace.